0: I would invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Today we're talking about gospel renewal and we're going to get into Christian experience, what it's like to live as a Christian who believes the gospel and is uh, feeling the effects and impact of the gospel upon his or her life. And I'm going to tell you up front, it's not what you expect it to be. I remember when my brother and I first uh, were saved, uh, he accidentally knocked his Bible over into the uh, commode, I guess is the best word I can use. And he immediately reached down in the uh, commode and retrieved the Bible, and it was wet halfway up. But after about two days, it looked like he had really been reading the Bible a lot. So not to be outdone by him, I went to the sink not the other took my Bible and dipped it in the water in the sink so that the pages would swell up so it looked like I had been reading the Bible a whole lot I know none of you ever did anything that stupid but I was that driven to be spiritual and I have to tell you I've learned a whole lot more since then and still have a long way to go but we're in Philippians chapter 3 and I just wanted to read uh, verses 9 through 16 which describe both justification that is the declaration that we are right with God and sanctification that is the process of renewal in our souls. Paul talks about both here so hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 9 and be found in him that is in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience to the law or the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Or, uh, yeah, from the dead. of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is with great joy today that we come together and sit under the preaching of your word. We know that your word is powerful, it's alive, it's sharp, sharper than a sword, with both edges, and it cuts us asunder and helps us discern uh, how the word is a critic of our motives and intents of the heart but we pray uh, praise you also because the word shows us the great remedy for all our woes and that is uh, the most beautiful attractive and suitable person we could ever know and that's jesus so we pray that we will see him and him only as we spend this time together in jesus name amen One of the reasons we as believers live beneath our privileges is that we're confused often about the relationship between justification and sanctification. These are theological terms that I will unpack at a sort of surface level this morning. We often live as if our justification is conditioned upon our sanctification, which is what most of the Roman Catholic theology is about. One key theological to, report, uh, to remember is, though justification and sanctification can be distinguished from one another, they are inseparable. They are what John Calvin called the duplex gratia, the twofold grace. Once we are by faith united to Christ, we receive his righteousness as much as if it was our own but justification is a legal term it is something that happens outside of us not inside of us it is a declaration not a process it is God wording something you remember in Genesis chapter 1 God spoke the world into existence he said let there be light and there was light and then ordered the six days of creation to follow When we become by faith united to Christ, God words us right with him. We are forever under his favor. We are united to his precious son. And when he sees us, he sees the beauty of Christ. He sees who we are in him which, by the way, is the most important person you will ever be, is the one who's united to Christ and the one who is becoming more like you. Christianity's not be- about becoming a better version of yourself. You need a whole lot more than just to be a better version of yourself. You need to be conformed to the character and image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that takes a lot of work, as we shall soon see. But justification is the declaration of God. Sanctification is the work of God. It is the process of God renewing us back into his image. It is the process of God delivering us more and more from the power of sin and conforming us more and more to the image of his son. Sanctification is a process that will take the rest of our lives. Ultimately, we'll issue in a glorification. When Christ returns, we will be completely like him. And so I wanted you to understand the background for that right. Sanctification is what God does inside the believer. It is Christ in us. Justification is what God does outside of us. It is Christ for us in our place. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit And it it is rooted in justification as cause to effect. One can never be claimed to be justified if sanctification is not a present reality in your experience. Because they're inseparable. You can't say you're right with God on the one hand if you are not one in the same time being renewed more and more into his image. So there's cause and effect in these two theological terms if we separate justification and sanctification, we cannot escape certain poisons like moralism and legalism and pharisaism and subjectivism and mysticism and triumphalism. All these isms are rooted in a failure to grasp the relationship of justification to sanctification. So Romans 8.1 informs us That for the one who is united to Christ by faith, not by works, there is now no condemnation. Our acceptance by God is based upon sheer, unmitigated grace. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. And freely means without a cause. There's never God looking at me and saying, well, you know, Tim, he's got his problems, he's got his struggles, but there's something in that boy I like, therefore I'm going to justify him. No, the only thing in me is everything that repulses him. And yet through grace, sheer unmitigated grace, he has done that. And he has been good to me. Uh, Grace is a quality in God's heart It is his goodness, favor, and mercy, and love showered upon the undeserving as well as the ill-deserving. It is God being kind to rebels who are at enmity with him. Grace is free for us, but it costs God his son. God accepts the unacceptable but never in a way that cancels or overrides his justice. The rule of law from the throne of God must be upheld. If not, God would not be God. He cannot contradict himself and so God must have legal valid grounds to forgive us and declare us righteous and he does that through the person and work of of his son. Therefore, justification becomes ours, as Dave mentioned earlier, by the empty hands of faith. We bring nothing to the relationship, the covenant relationship with God, but our failure and our sins. And he gives us nothing but what? The perfect obedience and righteousness and the forgiveness found in the blood of Jesus Christ washes us white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now, got those two things totally set in your mind? Now I want to begin to talk about this aspect of gospel renewal, and it involves three things. They are the three points in the sermon. They are struggle, progress, and perseverance. So when we look at this process of renewal through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation, we understand that there is a cycle or a dynamic in our relationship with God that looks something like this. There is first of all despair, there's, there's a sense of hopelessness, even as a Christian, when I see what God requires of me, what he wants of me as his child. He wants 100% perfect, perpetual obedience with the right motivation. That's what God wants of me. He wants in my life to fulfill love for him expressed through love for my neighbor love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, love him, or love my neighbor as I already love myself. That's what God requires. But anybody who's attempted to live that way will end up in despair. Why? Because we can't do it. Even a Christian indwelt by the Holy Spirit, a new creature in Christ Jesus, cannot reach perfection in this life. We always fall short. Dave mentioned in the call to worship, we are simul, ustis, et, peccator, meaning we are at the same time, simultaneously, righteous and a sinner. In one respect, I am as righteous as I will ever be before the throne of God, objectively outside of me because of the righteousness of Christ. But inside of me, the sinner's still there. And he hasn't really gotten any better. What is it that le- le- you have leukemia and it goes into what do you call that? Remission? Sometimes our sin may go into a period of remission briefly, but it's something we always struggle with. So we live with a certain amount of despair. That despair for the Christian leads us to return back to our justification and rest and relax in Christ and Christ becomes for us a joy, and we are able to relax, we are forgiven, we have a sense of a clean heart and a pure conscience, and then out of that relaxation of faith in his justifying word in Christ, out of that comes an energy you cannot possibly miss. And that energy drives you to persevere with all of your heart. It drives you to be proactive and productive as a believer. It is faith energizing you to love one another. It is faith, and the fruit of faith is good works. Out of a living faith in Jesus Christ will always flow good works but the cycle we go through every day, sometimes every hour, is despair. You know, it's, it's kind of like being married. When you get married, and you know, I say this with tongue in cheek a little bit, but when you get married and you're on your honeymoon, you think to yourself, this is wonderful i'm always going to feel like this this is great i'm so in love every moment i want to be with her all the time and so you're just loving it you love and loving it it's good it's great being married it's wonderful until you wake up the next day and go you know i don't really like the way she squeezes the toothpaste i'm gonna have to say something about this because i get up every morning she squeezed it in the middle and i have to pick it up and go back to the bottom and get it to get and i have to roll up the end of it come in the next day she squeezed it in the middle again well i don't particularly like the way she Uh, keeps the temperature in the room she's cold natured she's burning me up and then the food somehow just doesn't taste right and then conflict enters in and then conflict becomes difficult and living with another person becomes a reality and they're not just like you and they don't have the same ideas and where did all that go on the honeymoon well it's gone now and this is hard and then you're married two years and you say to yourself this is impossible Why didn't the pastor tell us, when we went through premarital counseling, how hard this would be? I did tell you that. You were just so starry-eyed in love with each other, you didn't hear it. It's impossible to live on another. It's impossible as a Christian to live in perfect obedience to God. Now, I want you to get that in your head, and it's okay that it's that way, because that's reality. Not okay in the sense that it's ever right to sin against God, but okay in the sense that it is normative description of the inner life of a Christian. We go through the despair, relaxation, effort, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. It is a process. But is there progress in this process of sanctification, growing in grace? Is there ever the possibility of reaching some sort of perfectibility? Uh, I had a friend who was a pastor and he had a woman who came to his church she was there for everything she was there more than he was at the building praying whatever else and so he was having a conversation with her and she said pastor I want you to know that uh I finally reached a point in my life of spiritual perfection and so the pastor just sort of said hmm He said well that's interesting tell me about it she said well I no longer sin she said I haven't sinned in uh at least two years and she said um I have I have no conscious uh, moment in my life where I remember that I have deliberately sinned against God and the pastor said well that's impressive he said you must be proud of that and she said yes I am and he said it's over it's over. Now we laugh at that but in reality we need to take comfort in something. Struggle is the nature of our relationship with God. So we begin with point number one and I'll try to get through these a little faster uh, which is the most salient problem we experience in which no period uh, can be shunted aside as of less importance. How do we picture the renewal of the gospel relative to the sinfulness that remains in force in the life of a believer. For we have to admit that renewal takes place in the face of enormous resistance. There is something in us that resists gospel renewal. And this resistance exerts a determinative influence on the process of renewal. In fact, so much that this process of renewal takes on the character of a struggle. It takes on the character of a struggle. Renewal leads to a situation of conflict. There it concerned the conflict with the world, which the believer sooner or later gets involved in to a greater, lesser extent, but even more closely to home. It gets into conflict with the powers of darkness and the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, but also it gets into conflict with myself. Myself experiences conflict. Renewal means becoming released and loose from the self, less and less egocentricity, more and more love and care for others. And so the believer gets involved right from the start into a conflict or battle with the self. And it issues in kind of an inner split in the life. Unless you think I'm making this up, look at Romans chapter 7, please. Romans chapter 7. Now, some people argue that Paul's discussion in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, is not a picture of of the struggle and conflict in the life of a believer and they're wrong about other things too because I think it perfectly captures the conflict between uh, the righteous believer uh, in Christ and the remaining flesh and residual indwelling sin. And here's how Paul says it. Oh, let's start because it's it's even frustrating to read the passage because he's describing Look at verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. In other words, Paul is talking about an inner split. There is in him, because of the work of Christ and the new creation in Christ Jesus, a heart that desires obedience to God more than anything else as a result of the justification we have in Christ. But there's also at the same time, in the same heart, sin in all of its ugliness and power resisting it. Paul goes on to say, for I know that nothing dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I, or nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, Paul is not saying I'm not responsible for sinning. That's because of my sin nature. He understands that he participates in that reality. But he lives a life of internal, constant conflict. It's not like all of my sinfulness has been removed. Now Jesus, just tell me what to do, and I will do it gladly. No, there's resistance. There's conflict. So Paul says this, So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. A non-Christian cannot do that. A non-Christian cannot delight in the law of God. But I see in my members, that is in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then in chapter 8, he's going to give us where we get the help. We get it through both justification, I'm now no longer condemned, though I struggle with sin, but I also get the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me and fights my flesh, my sinful nature. Look in Galatians 5, quickly. You don't hurry up, it's going to be a long sermon. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is, if you walk empowered and energized by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not gratify the cravings or lust of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do there again is conflict there again is the split as it were odd not schizophrenia it's not that but rather the conflict between the holy spirit who now indwells me and the cravings of my fallen nature, which I still participate in. So there we have it. The conflict of the believer starts in the beginning and intensifies the further we go. Um, Thus we began to do battle with ourselves, and this struggle is basically one of self-denial, denying the self. Therefore, the struggle can also be described as dying. That is why Paul uses the phrase, put to death the lust of your flesh. Put it to death. But he also has a positive side to that. Experience coming to life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, our walk with Jesus Christ is always dying and rising again as we fight the conflict inside. But we have to learn how to deny the cravings of our spirit and put that, I mean, of our flesh, and put that to death. It's a serious thing. But that's the struggle, that's the tension inside. For this self denial happens in the power of the spirit who transforms us. By the way, dying to self ain't no fun. Have you discovered that? There's nothing good or fun about denying myself. I mean, I'm just a big, fat, relentless ego who loves to get what I want. I know nobody else in here is, but I am. And I struggle, struggle, struggle with dying. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. And I've never enjoyed a moment of dying to myself. But the wonderful glory is when I do, by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, I get infused, as it were, with new life, and new power. Now, self-denial through the Spirit is the very opposite of self-destruction. If God leaves me to my own machinations, if he leaves me to my own desires within me, my own lust, I will utterly destroy myself. I know that about me. Left on my own. I will destroy myself but through the process of struggle through the process of self-denial through the process of dying and rising in the image and renewal of Christ I began to see myself not destroyed but rather enlarged Edwards talks about Jonathan Edwards if you can read him which is a challenge Uh, the man's from outer space as far as I'm concerned sometimes He's brilliant, he's gifted, and he makes your head hurt if you read him a lot. But he says some incredible things, and one of the things Edward says is that when you begin to understand what the gospel is all about and the truth of the gospel, it makes you more human, not less. And it opens up your heart and enlarges your heart for more of the glory of God and the love of neighbor. Self-denial through the Spirit is the opposite of self-destruction. It is a crossing of the boundaries which we in our egotism and addiction to the world and idolatry have imposed upon ourselves. Self-denial is thus in reality self-enlargement. We become ourselves again as God wanted us to be made in his image. We become more Christ-like who is the image of God par excellence. In this life, it is a never-ending struggle. To the last moment, it remains undecided, for we are part of a world and participate in a history in which the powers of God have not yet completely overcome. We live in the already of redemption, but there is a big not yet of redemption. And so, therefore, we're caught in the tension between the already who we are in Christ, the gift of the Spirit, forgiveness of sins, justification, gospel renewal, but also struggling and failing and sinning and grieving our sin and mourning our our brokenness before God. And so, in reality, we live in this tension, and we can't get out of it. And you're not going to get out of it this side of the grave. Well, pastor, that's just depressing isn't there a place where we can have victory? Yeah, at the cross. That's where Christ accomplished victory for us. But this is what I'm trying to get you to see. How do I know the gospel's real? How do I know the power of the gospel's operating in my heart? It's stirring up your sinfulness. The law of God stirs up your sinfulness in the hand of the Spirit. It not only stirs up your sinfulness, but it drives you to have no confidence in yourself and to return to Christ and ask for his empowerment. My wife tells me confidence has never been my problem. She never says the other part of it, though, aloud to me. Sometimes she will. But she says, but overconfidence is a lie it's just it's so countercultural to everything we live in in this world. We are just aliens to this world. This is not my home. I'm in the, I'm in two kingdoms. And that conflict causing and dwelling of the spirit is the way the new man in Christ expresses himself. Christ who we always fall back The guarantee of the coming great renewal and proof that renewal is being worked out. The Spirit, far from ending the struggle in our life, causes it to begin. I never had a struggle until the Holy Spirit decided to come live in me. I mean, I might have felt bad about it. I might have, you know, gone down the room and said, God, I know I did some bad stuff. I hope you don't punish me. Uh, Help me be a better person. But that wasn't struggling with sin because I was doing far worse than I knew. That was just so surface. So the struggle is the glaring sign of the unsavedness of our existence. But it's also the guarantee of the coming renewal. For this life, as we're told, we're righteous and sinner at the same time. It, nevertheless, the sinfulness is still there and applies because the kingdom and Our sanctification has not fully come. We are a microcosm that is a small picture of the big picture of the kingdom of God which has come into our world. You see it expressing yourself, itself, in the body of Christ. As the body of Christ worships him and serves him and loves its neighbor and provides healing and hope for those in our world and culture. But it's not, by no means winning the tide, by no means turning the tide. That will require cataclysm. That will require the second coming of Christ. So will my perfection as well. Strides will be made, but the Heidelberg Catechism, I'm sad to tell you, says this the best we do and the best we get is a good start a good start and so i'm trying to help you see from that well i need to get to point two because you're looking too de- sad and depressed out there. <laughs> the, however understand this the renewal creates no harmonious man it disturbs a natural harmony if it ever existed before One becomes a citizen of two worlds, therefore a split person. And there's tension with that. That's all I'm trying to say. Read Romans 6, 12 to 15, Romans 8, 12 to 14, Galatians 5, which I already read, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, Ephesians 6. They all talk about this. It is a biblical concept. And so, I want to get to point two, progress. Rightly understood... This delivers us from triumphalism. But as we learn to confess both guilt and grace, in the courage of grace, we dare admit our guilt and we do battle with ourselves. But what does progress look like? How do I know I'm having any progress? Because I've had people come to me and say, Pastor Tim, I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm getting any better. And I go, Hallelujah! They say, are you a pastor? I said, no, that's the first thing you need to see is you're not getting any better. In ways you can see you really are, you just don't see it. Because you didn't know how bad it was (laughs) in the first place. Neither did I. But let's talk about progress. What does that look like? The conflict in which man is involved as he strives for conformity to the image of Christ sometimes seems like we're at an impasse. The struggle is so fierce that it seems to impede any kind of concept of progress. It is a real question whether, in these, or question whether in these circumstances it is even warranted to speak of any kind of progress, let alone improvement. Of course, one could and often does console himself or herself with the fact that the believer's justification in the judgment of God remains inviolable. Uh, amid all the ups and downs of our spiritual life. But when we began to talk about struggle, Paul also speaks a lot about struggle, but he speaks about a growing, a pressing onward, a going forward, a straining to what lies ahead, even a growing stronger. In his weakness, God's grace is brought to its fullness in its power. Some of the passages in the New Testament seem to say that in this life, conformity with Christ seems almost a lie within reach. But struggle and progress apparently do not exclude but include each other. The progress happens amid the struggle and apparently the struggle does not lead to stagnation but to steady progress the question rises then how are we to conceive of spiritual progress in this conflict situation and there are four things I want to bring your attention to here only in the bro- this is number one for those of you who take notes number one Only in the brokenness of the conflict does the believer really get to know himself in his opposition against God. So long as that opposition remains unchallenged, it may seem to lie dormant and can easily be underestimated. The struggle is thus an advancing in self-knowledge. You don't even know who you are until the Holy Spirit enters your life and begins to stir up this conflict between the flesh and the spirit one of the greatest ways to discover yourself is by knowing God. You can't really know who you are until you know who God is, and you can't really know God until you know who you are. Calvin said that in the first paragraph of the Institutes. Self-knowledge is always related to God's knowledge, and God's knowledge is always related to how I know myself. So in this conflict, we began to see our true selves. Consequently, this is number two, the struggle also implies progress in living from justification. The better we get to know ourselves, the less we expect of ourselves and from ourselves and the more we fall back on God's grace as the decisive foundation of our life. Paul says, I have no confidence in the flesh that is i have no confidence in who i am apart from the redeeming work of jesus christ i know that's counterintuitive but it's true the more i see the more i uh expect from myself you know was i was praying before we uh, came to church and while we were driving to church although with my eyes open so If you see me riding and talking, it's usually me praying. And I was praying, and I was just realizing how how utterly dependent I am upon God for anything worthwhile to come out of the preaching of the Word. I mean, I... (laughs) you know, you can try to fake it till you make it. You can try to entertain. You can try to be funny. You can try a thousand different things, but only God can bless his word. Only God can make it alive. Only God can open people's eyes. I am backed up to total abandonment in my skills or gifts and total trust in his power and his presence. But it is precisely this growing relaxation in Christ that inspires us to fresh and greater efforts, making the struggle even more intense. And coupled with that, the conflict spreads to more and more areas of our life. For the first time, we discover new areas of conduct and thinking, which so far has never been involved in the process of renewal. The Holy Spirit is not just satisfied Uh, There was a little pamphlet one time called My Heart, Christ, Home or something where the spirit enters in and you like him in the living room but you don't really want him to go down the hallway to this bedroom where you got everything stuffed that you don't want people to see. Most of you have a junk place, don't you? If you don't, I don't even know who you are. But I have a garage. My next door neighbor was hauling off some bedroom furniture. And so I pulled up and I rolled my window down and he doesn't hear that well, so I yelled at him. Paul, what are you doing? He said, I'm taking this stuff to Goodwill. I said, well, my wife might want to look at that. She loves antique furniture. He said, I've seen your garage. There's nowhere to put it. (laughs) My wife says, there's always somewhere to put it. You can move out and we'll put this where you live. The Holy Spirit when he works this process of renewal in us he's going everywhere he's going to what you think he's going to your fantasies he's going to your desires he's he won't stop he keeps uncovering he keeps working it is for our good it's painful but it is for our good and coupled with that this is number four the conflict spreads to more and more areas of our life and the process of renewal constantly grows where we have more and more opportunities to trust God to change us. And so progress looks different but the fact is that the Christian life is a matter of goal and advancing toward it, of a goal and advancing toward it. It is, it brings up the question, how sanctification and justification go together can we still maintain that it's totally and solely by justification by which we are adopted as god's children is adoption also partly dependent on to say at least how well our relaxation inspires us to greater effort but then we say we're saved by grace alone must not at least we cooperate with grace i don't like that word cooperate because it implies equality We have a responsibility to participate in our sanctification. But we cannot cooperate as God. We participate responsibly through repentance and faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we participate. And so our works add nothing to the accomplished grace on which we depend We do not cooperate with grace, but faith makes grace effective. The presence of grace is seen in its effects, and only he who by faith loses the grim determination to works and sanctification can do something that gives fruitfulness and progress to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. We do always fall back on our justification, but we do make progress. It is progress occurs. Usually, however, I have discovered, you're the last one to know it. You're the last one to see your own progress. But faith itself will express itself through love for both God and others. And you will see a progress, even though that tension and its conflict is there. You will see growth. You will see progress. However, if there's no experience at all of struggle and any kind of victory, then self-examination is certainly called for. But my final point is perseverance. Because sometimes in the struggle we feel like this is pretty hopeless, this is pretty powerful. But the more the believer is prompted by his security in God, he ventures into the life of new obedience The more he needs as he struggles along the certainty that God's faithfulness and Christ's substitution will carry him through to the end. Justification tells us that we stand on an unshakable foundation on which we can always fall back. But who guarantees that we, as we struggle and stumble along and even suffer defeats, will not slide off that foundation? The more we fight, the more we sense fearfully how great the resistance in our heart is to surrender ourselves to God and to remain faithful in the struggle, the question then arises of security and certainty in the faith. The question is not, am I really a sinner received in grace, but will this adoption into Christ be permanent and show its effects in my life? Who can guarantee that for me? The question is also who, without such a certainty, can avoid succumbing to despair and keep up the courage to continue the fight? And that is where the fifth point of the doctrines of grace rides in to save the day. It's called the perseverance of the saints, which is God persevering with the sinner, the redeemed sinner. The perseverance of of the saints. I talked about that in an earlier message regarding our security in Christ. It is a doctrine that articulates a fundamental insight that our wavering faithfulness is upheld on all sides by God's unwavering faithfulness. The faithfulness is not dependent on our faith. Instead, our faith depends on the faithfulness of God. For I'm sure that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the believer may and even dares to believe that he will persevere in the faith and nothing will snatch him out of God's hand. God perseveres or preserves us. We sometimes see perseverance of the saints as something we do. We do it, but we outwork what he works in. It is he who keeps us in his hand. If God was to let go of you for two seconds, you're done. You're done. But what keeps me striving? What keeps me uh, submitting myself to the Lord, denying myself, struggling in conflict with the flesh and the world and the devil? And the only thing I answer to that is that God is at work. He who has begun a good work in you, that is regeneration, will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. That is the day of the Lord, the day Christ returns. The completion of my sanctification will issue in glorification. I will become as much like Jesus as a redeemed sinner can be. And that is the full realization. But that awaits that day. In the meantime, we've got to learn how to relax. In Jesus and out of that relaxation comes a desire to strive and uh, Resort to effort to pursue God with all of our hearts and we will always fall short. We will always fall short We will always fall short and experience a sense of Brokenness and even despair and we have to learn to go back and relax in Christ. And so that is the dance we do as believers But what I'm trying to give you is a realistic assessment of normative Christianity and there's just so very few people who ever talk about this. I find it comforting myself because what I have seen in the Bible is descriptive of my own experience of struggle and conflict. And yet I have seen by God's grace Progress. I am nowhere near what I ought to be, but thank God I ain't what I was. God loves us as we are, receives us, we come as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. His work is always about changing us into the image of Christ. And that work involves a process, and that process is lifelong. And progress, its it's not, progress needs to be looked at From various angles. But even the warfare in the soul is progress. That is progress itself. The conflict is progress. The extension of the conflict to all areas of your life is progress. So hallelujah, God is at work. And we can rest in that as we see our faith express itself more and more in works and love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that nobody will snatch us out of your hand. We thank you that even though our experience here is one of struggle and one of progress is sometimes hard to find and describe and name, in reality, one day we will war no more. One day we will experience the shalom of God. We will experience the sense of well-being and wholeness that is ours in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace and your pursuit of us. And your persevering with us. We thank you for your faithfulness that is rock solid. Though ours wavers, you do not and we can believe in that we can rest in that we can have peace in that and we can trust that now fathers we continue to worship you may we give as people who love you and want to express our love to you by giving back a portion of that which you have entrusted to us as an expression of our gratitude in jesus name amen